Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. From the St. Louis Public Radio Newsroom, this is The Gateway. It's Thursday, March 25th. I'm Wayne Pratt. St. Louis officials disbanded homeless camps last year against Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommendations and moved people into hotels. We were promised by the mayor, the chief of staff, that we were going to be treated in a humane manner before they took our tents away. In just a few minutes, St. Louis Public Radio's Shayla Farzan investigates what happened to those who were put into the hotels. The average daily number of new coronavirus cases in Missouri has dropped almost 90 percent since peaking in November. Hospitalizations and deaths are also down significantly in the last three months. St. Louis Public Radio's Sarah Fentum reports that is, in part, due to the state's efforts to ensure seniors and other at-risk people receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Missouri has seen approximately 600 new cases a day in the past week. That's compared with approximately 5,000 cases a day during November's peak. Residents and workers in nursing homes, older people, and people with chronic health problems were the first in the state to become eligible for the vaccine after it arrived in Missouri late last year. Those are the people most likely to end up in the hospital, says Dr. Robert Poirier, an emergency medicine physician who works at Barnes Jewish Hospital. He says ER patients who haven't received the vaccines appear to have more serious cases of COVID-19. I saw a couple patients that were vaccinated that had very low-level Uh, infections, and we were able to discharge them, and they were doing well. He says social distancing and mask wearing have also helped reduce infection rates throughout the region. I'm Sarah Fenton, St. Louis Public Radio. More schools are bringing back students during the pandemic. Students in the Ferguson Florissant School District sat down at desks yesterday for the first time in more than a year. About 130 chose to return to McClure South Berkeley High School. Senior Kimon Jenkins had a mix of joy and worry about returning. School definitely feels different. I am used to seeing all the hand sanitizer and tapes all around different public places. But it just is, is real weird seeing it in your school. Ferguson Florissant is one of the last districts to bring students back. In a few days, neighboring Hazelwood will reopen classrooms. There are about six weeks left in the school year. Owners of live performance venues throughout the region are anticipating an influx of federal money they say is necessary to stay afloat during the pandemic. St. Louis Public Radio's Jeremy Goodwin reports. Congress approved $15 billion in December for clubs, concert halls, and other venues, many of which have been closed for business since officials placed limits on public gatherings. Interested venue owners have waited for three months to learn when they can apply for help. They now know that date is April 8th, and that's not a moment too soon, says Pat Hagen. He's managing partner of St. Louis Rock Clubs, The Pageant, and Del Mar Hall. When you're in the hole that most venues are in, that's a, that's a long delay. But at the same time, without this, the, the, the industry would collapse. For the first two weeks of applications, only cultural venues that lost 90% of their income in 2020 will be able to request a grant. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, St. Louis Public Radio. One of the first players to wear the St. Louis Blues uniform has died. Defenseman Bobby Plager was killed in a two-car crash along Interstate 64 yesterday. He joined the Blues in 1967 and spent decades with the team as a player, coach, and executive. 
Current Blues general manager Doug Armstrong calls Plager the heart of the team. As Bobby would fondly say, he's number five in your program, but number one in your hearts. That holds true today and forever, as Bobby truly is the St. Louis Blues. Police say Plager was the only person in his vehicle. A passenger in the second car suffered minor injuries. Bobby Plager was 78. A St. Louis effort intended to protect the city's homeless population from COVID-19 may have put people in even greater jeopardy. The $5.7 million program has moved homeless people into hotel rooms during the pandemic. In collaboration with APM Reports, St. Louis Public Radio's Shayla Farzan investigates what happened to the people living in those hotels. Last April, St. Louis Mayor Lida Krusen called a homeless encampment across the street from City Hall a high-risk health situation. It is a pretty serious health threat to have these individuals mixing it up, not practicing social distancing, living in this group situation. The following week, the city closed two downtown encampments and evicted the roughly 50 people living there. A homeless encampment set up for weeks across the street from City Hall is coming down. The city says it's illegal. It's too risky. They have to be out by Friday. The mayor emphasized that this was about protecting public health. But the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention advised against breaking up homeless encampments during the pandemic, warning it could, quote, cause people to disperse throughout the community and possibly increase the spread of infectious diseases. Armed with this information from the CDC, a group that advises the city on homelessness pushed back on the mayor's plans. Shauna Neewig leads the St. Louis Continuum of Care. She was one of more than a dozen board members who told the mayor they were gravely concerned about the eviction, partly because there were not enough shelter beds available. The mayor contacted us 24 hours before they were going to disperse the encampment and asked us to get behind it, and that's just not something we could get behind. Despite these warnings, the city moved people into temporary housing, including hotel and apartment buildings across the city, like the Red Roof Inn, Mark Twain Hotel, and Western Inn. Nearly a year later, city officials maintained that people were better off at these hotels than on the street. But our investigation found the city moved residents into harm's way by placing them in hotels with a history of criminal violence, drug activity, and unsanitary living conditions. Public records requests and interviews reveal some of these shelters were not safe places to live. And in some cases, residents were the victims of violent attacks. All right, hi. I was trying to see if I can get an officer to come to the railroad A pregnant woman in the city's program, who we are not identifying, was assaulted last summer while walking to the Red Roof Inn lobby. Yes, uh, my ex-boyfriend had came up here. I know I was just standing at the uh, front office and I had seen him coming up behind me. Okay, what did he do to you? He hit me in my stomach. Police arrived at the hotel minutes later. Prior assault at the Red Roof Inn at 5823 Wilson. 2228. St. Louis Metropolitan Police reports show officers responded dozens of times to the Red Roof Inn last summer. Sharon Morrow, an outreach worker who delivered supplies to residents, remembers one night in particular when a couple living there called her in a panic after hearing gunshots. And they were like, it was right outside our room. 
The next morning, Morrow says, she found bullet holes in the concrete by their door. By June, the Red Roof Inn decided not to renew its lease with the city of St. Louis, and the program at that location shut down. We contacted the regional vice president for Red Roof Inns to ask why, but he declined an interview request. Our investigation found a history of violence and crime at these hotel shelters well before the city's program began. Police reports from 2019 show multiple assaults, armed robbery, rape, drug overdoses. The Red Roof Inn and the Mark Twain also had bedbug complaints going back to 2017, according to data from the Citizen Service Bureau. We contacted Mayor Letta Cruson's office and asked her staff if they were aware of the issues at these hotels before selecting them. Her chief of staff, Steve Conway, would only say that they used the spaces that were available to them. We were comfortable with those units that we rented um, to house the people in a way better place, healthier, safer, more sanitary condition than where they were. Conway called the city's program an incredible success and said the hotel shelters were more desirable places to live than the encampments. The mayor's spokesperson, Jacob Long, defended the decision to move people out of the downtown camps, saying they were a danger to the residents and the community at large. It was an unsafe, unsanitary, and a public health nuisance with feces, with rat holes, food everywhere, syringes, drugs. But drugs are a problem even in some of these city-leased hotel spaces. Amos Harris owns the Mark Twain Hotel, a low-income apartment building downtown where homeless people from the city's program live alongside renters. He says trying to keep drug dealers out of the building has always been a challenge. Drugs are just a, just a scourge. If, if there's somebody in there that's starting to deal, that's just a huge problem. And the homeless are a very, you know, they're a vulnerable population. So they get preyed on by, you know, low-level drug dealers and whoever. Harris says he decided to lease about 20 rooms to the city last spring, after officials personally contacted him, frantic to find space for the people at the encampments. But he says the Mark Twain is not the right place for the homeless long term. Ultimately, city officials say the goal is to move people out of these hotels and into permanent housing. And that has happened at some locations. Just a few miles north of the Mark Twain is the Western Inn. I don't want to make it sound like everything has been roses. It has been very hard. Tony Wade manages the shelter program at the Western Inn and says they've dealt with their fair share of issues, like cockroaches, mice, and bedbugs. But they've also been able to move about two dozen people into permanent housing, including an elderly woman and her granddaughter. When you hear those stories and those success stories, and all you need is one, it could replace tens of incidents of that were bad. Still, Wade says they have kicked some people out for rule violations. Our investigation found that residents had to follow strict rules to stay at these hotels, some imposed by the building owners and others by the organizations running the shelters. They ranged from a no-alcohol policy and room searches at the Red Roof Inn to a 6 p.m. curfew at the Western Inn, and at the Mark Twain, a requirement that residents dress appropriately in common areas. Shelter residents found these rules intrusive and difficult to follow, says outreach worker Sharon Morrow. You know, they just didn't want to be treated like children. They wanted to have be treated with honor and dignity as the adults that they were and not criminals. One civil rights attorney in St. Louis said the vast majority of his clients who were placed at a hotel shelter were kicked out in a matter of days for rule violations. In several Facebook videos, shelter residents described their frustration. 
I'm gonna start writing down how many times they knock on my door. They're treating us like prisoners, man. We can't. I can't even have a visitor come to my door without them threatening to throw me out. When did we start doing these hourly room checks? And how come nobody came to give us a piece of paper to ask us about this like they did about the other room checks? That last voice was Marcus Hunt. He moved into the Red Roof Inn in May, and soon after, he started recording Facebook videos, sometimes several per day. In one, he paces around the hotel parking lot as traffic rushes by on nearby Interstate 44. I don't even know what to do. I'm at my wit's end because they're making it seem like, oh, if you don't like it, get the French toast out. But again, we were promised by the mayor, the chief of staff, that we were going to be treated in a humane manner before they took our tents away. Running the Red Roof Inn as a shelter was difficult for several reasons, says Michael Robinson. He's the CEO and co-founder of City Hope, a nonprofit that has provided care and case management for people at three of these hotels. For one thing, he says, having a profitable hotel and a homeless shelter in the same building was not a good mix. And while it was a good thing that shelter residents had their own rooms, Robinson says there was no place for them to gather, even in a socially distant way. They were already a part of community, and then we brought them from that community into another space that they weren't allowed to be community in. And that's what's been lost in this whole process, says Marcus Hunt, the community that once existed. He says these encampments are not just a random collection of tents. They're neighborhoods with a budget, a policing structure, a treasurer. Hunt himself served as the mayor of one of the downtown encampments before it was dismantled. It's not that people are just out here on their own. This is a community that we set up to deal with the pandemic. That's what it was from day one. Less than a month after Hunt moved from the encampment to the Red Roof Inn, he was arrested on charges that were later dropped. He lived in an apartment for a few months, but he recently lost that housing and is homeless again. In January, he visited a camp huddled next to a vacant warehouse downtown, just before the owner evicted the people living there. Hunt stood watching, hands in his pockets, as people shoved clothing and food into trash bags. It's almost like watching your house burn down over and over again. We've given them this community to belong to. We've given them the semblance of safety just to take it from them. Hunt says people living on the streets is an issue that's not going away. But breaking up encampments and moving people all over the city is not the solution. I'm Shayla Farzan, St. Louis Public Radio. That story was produced in collaboration with APM Report's Public Media Accountability Initiative with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Our Maria Altman helped edit that report. Shula Newman is the executive editor of St. Louis Public Radio. Music by Ryan McNeely of Adult Fur. I'm Wayne Pratt. From the St. Louis Public Radio newsroom, this has been The Gateway. Support comes from Mosby Building Arts, a design-build company committed to remodeling the right way. Visit callmosby.com to get project inspiration for any room of your house.